So the, the theme of this semester is that the God I don't believe in or the God you don't believe in, one of those things. Uh, the topic today is sexuality. So I'm, I'm sure for many people, maybe for some of us, certainly for many of our friends um, on campus, when we think of the issue of sexuality, when people think of that issue and think of God, they're assuming God is just going to be the problem. Uh, God is the one who's stopping me from doing the things I want to do. God is the one stopping me from being the person I feel I should be. God is the one stopping me from being fulfilled and complete in the way that I, I understand I need to be. And so it's very hard with this topic to, to think about how God could be good. Uh, one of the questions I hear the most uh, speaking on this kind of stuff in different contexts is, why does, why does God care about this? I mean, surely if God is there, if God is real, if God actually does exist, you look at the news feed, you look at the headlines, uh, there is enough serious stuff in the world for God to be bothered about. Uh, doesn't he have bigger fish to fry than what two consenting adults do in the privacy of their own homes? Uh, what, why is he bothered about this stuff? And I've, I've seen people kind of hover around the Christian faith, be interested in it, be convinced of elements of it, realise this sounds like good news to them, and the, the issue that, that stops them going all in with Jesus is this issue. That I, I, I can't handle a God who is going to tell me what I can and can't do in my own bedroom. And so when they ask me the question, why, what, you know, why should God care who I sleep with? The, the, I want to ask the question back, why do you care so much? As in people give up all kinds of stuff for religion. There's, there's friends of ours who are, I'm, I'm making this up, I'm going to get all the details wrong, Hindu, and they don't eat beef. Is that right? There's friends of ours who might be Jewish or Muslim and they don't eat pork. There are people who give up certain days, certain habits, certain amounts of money, certain key aspects of their lifestyle. Why is this the deal breaker to us? And the answer is because we think this, apart, you know, above everything else, is the thing that's most going to make us happy. That is most going to make us fulfilled. And so if there is a God out there who might in some way interfere with my sexual freedom, I can't believe in that kind of God. Which just tells me, you've already made your sexual fulfillment your God, and how's that going? So I wanted to, to think about some of the things Jesus says on this. I can't remember if I gave you anything to put on the screen or not, probably not. You have it on your phones, yeah. So Matthew 5, 27 and 28, we're just going to look at two, two short verses in which Jesus compresses a huge amount of good news for us uh, when it comes to sexuality. It may not be obvious that it's good news. I'm going to try and show you why it is. Matthew 5, 27, 28. If you've got it on a device, that's great. If you have it on a tattoo somewhere, you can look that up if it's appropriate. Um, they also do the, the scripture comes now in book form as well. So if you've got one of these versions of it, you can, uh, you can turn it up. But in Matthew 5, 27... We read these words, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And maybe for some of us, if we're, if we're not familiar with the Christian faith, hearing those words, we think, yeah, see, this, this, was what I was, this is what I was talking about. It's, it's restrictions, there's loaded terms like adultery and lust, and it, it's, it's people trying to restrict my freedom. It's someone trying to draw lines and tell me what I can and can't do. And we don't believe in doing that, except everybody does. So when someone tells me, well, Christians are against sexual freedom, I say, well, so are you. 
Because even when someone says, what's wrong with what consenting adults do in their bedroom, you've already just drawn a line there. You've drawn a line around the word consent. So you don't think anyone should just be able to do what they want to do. You believe there should be constraint. You believe that constraint should be based around consent. I happen to agree with you, but why do you draw the line there? On what basis is that the line you draw? And I actually want to suggest we can talk about this more in the Q&A. You get that line from the Bible itself. It was Christianity that actually introduced the whole concept of consent to the Greco-Roman world. That was not an issue. It's not a self-evident truth. Most civilizations have not believed in consent. Uh, someone else said to me recently, well, we're just, you know, we're just animals. This is just biology. It's just exchange of bodily fluids. It's just what mammals do. So why have so many hang-ups, so many hang-ups about the, health, the whole thing? And again, I want to say, yeah, you, no one believes that. I mean, that's a convenient thing to say, but no one actually believes that. Uh, have you ever seen an animal seeking consent? Okay, my friend has a, has, a, has a beautiful Labrador. I love that dog. That dog kind of loves me in some <laughs> uncomfortable ways. And most other objects, some alive, some inanimate. And, and so on. That dog does not have a concept of, of consent, and my, my right leg can testify to that. There's, there's, there's stuff that goes on out there in the animal world. You know, if we treated each other like like that, we, most of us would end up in prison. Okay, we say, oh, we're just animals, we're just doing what's, what comes natural. No, no one believes that. You don't believe that about yourself. You may think, yeah, I've got an appetite that I really want to fulfill. Yeah, that's fine, that's, that's true. But you want to be treated like something more than an animal, and you want this to mean something like more than just biology. So what does Jesus have to say? Um, well, a couple of things. Uh, here's, here's the first thing. Jesus is challenging. But he's challenging to every single one of us. And secondly, Jesus is... He's dignifying. He's dignifying to every single one of us. And third thing, this may sound weird in this context, bear with me, I'll explain it when we get to it. Jesus is satisfying more than anyone else is. So what's going on here? We're, we're in a passage, uh, Matthew 5, it's part of the Sermon on the Mount, you may be familiar with that. Even people who aren't Christians have heard parts of the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's seeped into Western culture in lots of significant ways. And Jesus is taking some of the Ten Commandments from the Old Testament and he's comparing how they've been understood with what they really mean. He's basically taking issue with how people have received these commandments and he's saying, no, actually getting at something deeper than that. So in Matthew 5, verse 27, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And, you know, we, but Jesus was most likely talking to, to a, a, an audience of Jewish men. Just from the time he was at and the, the place he would have been, that kind of thing, it would have been Jewish men Jesus was speaking to. And so when Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, the Jewish men would have been going, yeah, we, yeah, we've heard that. Yeah, we have heard that. We know that. We've been taught the Ten Commandments. We're familiar with them. We've been told not to commit adultery. We've been told not to ever be unfaithful in our own marriages or to, 
to mess around in someone else's. They knew that was what the Old Testament said. And, and most of these guys would be thinking, and Jesus, we've, we've, we've obeyed that. We've not done that. We've been good. Okay, I'm, I've not cheated on my wife. So Jesus says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. He then says, but I say to you, and maybe for just a moment, those men were going, where's Jesus going to go with this? You've heard it was said, don't commit adultery, but I say, you've got to be true to yourself. Or you've got to follow your heart. Or you've just got to go where love leads. That's how most people today would complete that sentence. Maybe they thought Jesus was going to loosen this Old Testament command up a bit. But instead Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who looks at someone with lustful intent has already committed adultery with them in his heart. Uh, when we think about sexuality, we're, we're not just thinking about some ethical issue that is, is out there in society somewhere. We're, we're thinking about something that is so intensely personal for every single one of us. And not just personal, for, for many of us, painful. All of us have got some story about our own sexuality, our own experience of it. And for many of us in the room, that, that is a painful story. Maybe painful because of longings that have gone unmet, maybe painful because of disappointments that have happened, maybe painful because of ways people have treated us, maybe painful because of things we recognise in hindsight we've done to other people that we shouldn't. And for so many of us there are, there are regrets. Uh, like many people on your campus, um, my story is, is one of having come to realise at a young age that I was attracted to men and not attracted to women. It took me a while to figure that one out. I'm not, not very fast at the best of times. I was a teenager in the 90s, so we weren't thinking in, in the same kind of categories of, of sexual identity in the way that we are today. It was just me and my little brain trying to figure this all out on my own. And my, I wasn't a Christian at the time, but as a, as a teenager, I began to realise that was the case for me. And I remember thinking... Okay, when I go to university, that's when I can explore this. Uh, the early 90s were not culturally kind on this kind of topic, so I did not want anyone to know. But I knew that the universities I was thinking of going to had what we then called LGB societies. We haven't come up with those other letters yet. Uh, but I remember thinking, okay, so there are going to be people at these universities that will have a similar vibe to me and maybe that's where I can I, I will have some safety to think about this safety to explore this but in between thinking that and getting to university I became a Christian hadn't planned to wasn't part of my agenda but I had a good friend who invited me to his church's youth ministry I went along, I heard the message of Jesus for the first time, realised that what I had imagined Christianity was, was nothing to, like what Jesus was actually talking about. I'd assumed Christianity was about God congratulating good people. And Jesus is saying, no, it's about God coming to find lost people. And something in me realised that if, if God was there, if God really had made me, I didn't know him. And I figured I was probably supposed to. 
but I didn't and that was probably on me and therefore I was lost I, I didn't know the one who made me so the idea that God would actually come for me and find me and seek me and, and save me was compelling but it then raised the question of well okay if I'm going to follow Jesus what does he say about my sexuality and this is one of the key verses for me because Jesus isn't easy but he's very compelling so Jesus is saying to these guys who would have, who would have assumed yeah we're, we're quite good at the not committing adultery thing we've, we've you know got that one covered you got us with some of those other commandments Jesus that and fair game to you but with this one we're feeling good and Jesus turns around and says actually adultery is not about what you do in your bedroom it's about what you do in your heart it's not about what you do with your genitals it's about what you do with your eyes and how you look at someone it's about what you do with your mind and how you think about someone Jesus says actually God has built into his purposes of creation a purpose for even those things God, God is the one who gave us sexual energy to start with that was his idea we didn't discover this behind his back he came up with this because he had a plan for it and every time we look at someone else and see a commodity or see something that is there for us to consume or see something that exists to satisfy our own cravings and, and appetites and to gratify us Jesus is saying we've we've missed the point of what this is all for uh, we tend to think in our culture today that, that actually as much as it is as it is about anything we tend to think sex is about self-expression it's about being true to yourself it's about being who you are it's about fulfilling yourself it's about being authentic one of the things we see in, in the Bible and Jesus is is getting at this is that God has given us sex to be a form of self-giving it's not about my needs being met by somebody else it's about me giving myself to somebody else um, if you want to look this up later on we, we see this in, in Genesis 1 and 2 part of God's purpose for sex is procreation if you have questions about that Kevin's around you can ask him <laughs> Uh, but in, in Genesis 2 we're given a, a different angle on the whole thing and we realize sex is not just about making kids and, and multiplying the human race it's about it's about binding two people together at an extraordinarily deep level in a way that is not designed to be undone without some profound pain being involved uh, you may know the account in Genesis 2 you've got the account of Adam and Eve and they're, they're literally made for each other they get together during the chapter it's telling by the way that the the first kind of human scene in the Bible is a naked man and a naked woman getting together God's not embarrassed about that that's actually the key to what the whole Bible is about but when they get together that the kind of the passage rounds off by saying they became one flesh they were still two separate bodies but something had happened at, at such a kind of granular level that they could be described as being one flesh and we, we use that language in bad songs today we talk about two becoming one and, and how profound that all is we don't really think about what that means two, two people are being fused together at the most profound and deep level 
which is why that the bible has always said you shouldn't do that until you're with someone you know you're quite happy to be stuck with indefinitely because you're, you're binding your souls together you want to know who that is before you do that um, there's a there's a weird kind of not very good movie from about 20 years ago I'm, I'm really up to date with my cultural references but they're probably still more recent than most of Kevin's um, <laughs> Uh, this, this, is, this is from this century, right? So that's a, that's a start. Um, anyway, it's called Vanilla Sky. It's a Tom Cruise movie. It's not one of his better ones. But there's, there's a scene in the movie where his character has had a one-night stand with Cameron Diaz's character. And early on in the movie, she kind of confronts him and challenges him about it. And she says, she says this, when you sleep with someone, your body makes promises, even if you don't. Terrible movie, great line. Okay. <laughs> I remember watching the movie going, this is a really bad movie, hearing that line going, I, I need to write that down and use that in a talk in 20 years' time for my next-door neighbour. That's how these things work. Uh, when you sleep with someone, your body makes promises, even if you don't. That's, that's part of how God has designed this to work, and so it, it really matters. And because it's about self-giving, when you look at someone else's sexuality and you, you're seeing it in terms of what you can get from it, you're missing the point of it. And Jesus is saying that that's the point of this commandment. He's, he's doing this with all the commandments. <laughs> he's, he's making people who think they've obeyed them realise they haven't even started to. Because Jesus is saying the whole point of the Ten Commandments was, was never to give humanity an opportunity to prove how obedient it could be. The whole point of the Ten Commandments is, is God showing us we can't do what he wants. We just can't. And therefore, the only way we're ever going to have a relationship with him is on the basis of his forgiveness. That's why he's given us his commandments. He's trying to show us what we're really like. And Jesus is trying to show us what, what we're really like with this particular area of life. Now, I'm, I'm British. You probably picked that one up by now. Um, that, that was not a South Dakota accent you've been hearing uh, this evening. Um, I'm from England, you're, you're Americans, I'm assuming, most of you. And so it's, it's not wise for me to talk to you about dental health, okay? <laughs> but we, we do, contrary to popular belief, we do have dentists in England. We have, I know at least five in the, in the country. Um, and when I, was, when I was living in the UK, I haven't figured this out in the United States yet because it's a weird system for me, but I would have an annual checkup with my dentist. And if I knew I was seeing the, the dentist for that checkup in the morning, I would think, okay, I'm going to really, really brush my teeth this morning. Olympic level teeth brushing. Um, you know, blood would be pouring out of my mouth by the end of it. <laughs> eyes would be stinging with, with peppermint kind of... And I would go to the dentist thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get, I'm going to impress this guy. <laughs> and I would get in there, the dentist would do the normal dentistry things, which uh, if you want to be a dentist and, and can't afford the medical school, I, I gather what you do is you, you just get a paper clip and unravel it and then poke someone in the gums for 10 minutes and give them a bill. <laughs> so he would do that, he would poke, poke me in the gums of various things and then utter things that were meant to, to sound important and significant. But then at one point, he gives me this cup of like, I don't know, it's blue or green or pink fluid, and he says, just rinse your mouth out with this stuff, spit it out, and it will show up the dirt on your teeth. 
And I'd think, not these teeth. These, these are clean. I burned calories this morning brushing my teeth. Somehow I got my steps in just by brushing my teeth. So he'd give me the cup, I would rinse my mouth out, I'd spit it out, and I'd, he'd show me in a mirror, and my mouth would be just fluorescent with that colour. And he would say the same thing to me every year. He'd say, listen, I know you brush your teeth. I know you think your teeth are clean, but there is always much more dirt there than you know. And that is what Jesus is doing with these commandments. He's trying to say, listen, there is always far more mess in your heart than you think there is. And so when it comes to, to sexuality, Jesus is saying, listen, none of us do this in the way we're supposed to. We all misuse our sexuality. We all misuse other people's because our hearts don't need to be trained to look at someone lustfully. That just happens. That's what we turn sex into, is what I get from you, not what I'm supposed to be giving to you. So please hear this, because this gets... This gets um, people get this wrong in Christian circles. Sometimes people go around saying, the message of Christianity is, you start your life pure sexually, and you have to maintain that purity. And the moment you lose that purity, you are damaged goods for the rest of your life. That is the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, you never were pure. Our hearts are not naturally pure. We're not lined up naturally with God's design. We, we're selfish. We're self-absorbed. We make everything about us. And therefore Jesus has come to give grace and help to us. All of us are going to need his mercy. All of us are, are broken and messed up in this part of our lives. All of us are sexual sinners. Jesus is putting everybody in the same boat here. We've done different things. Some of us have done more things than others. But Jesus is saying in our hearts we're basically the same. We're made of the same stuff. And so there is no place for looking down on someone else because of their particular sexual sin. There's no reason to demean anybody else. Jesus levels the playing field. If there's, if there's one kind of sexual sinner that Jesus isn't good news for, he's not good news for any of us. All of us need him or none of us do. So Jesus is challenging, because if we, if we hear what Jesus is saying, we're not thinking, well, I'm better than those other people. We're thinking, my heart's a mess. I need, I need help. I'm not very good at being a person. And that's why he's come. But here's the other thing. Jesus is, is dignifying. Just look again at, at verse 28. Jesus says, if you look at someone with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Now, we, we thought about that in terms of the person doing the looking. But think about it in terms of the person being looked at. Jesus is saying he cares how you look at other people. That matters to him. He made them. But he also cares how someone looks at you. How someone regards you. How someone values you. Jesus is saying that each one of us has a dignity. Even in all of our broken sexuality, each one of us has a dignity that matters so much to him that it shouldn't be violated 
even in the privacy of someone else's mind. Jesus cares how someone else views your sexuality. You might never know how someone else is thinking about you, but Jesus does and it bothers him. Because if someone is turning you into a commodity, if someone is turning you into a consumable, they are violating why God has made you. You matter far more to Jesus than you realise. Which is why if, our, if the God we don't believe in is a God who's prudish, a God who's just awkward when it comes to sexuality, I don't believe in that God either. I believe in a God who's challenging because he knows more about what our sexuality is for than we do. But the reason he's challenging is, is not because he's got a low view of sex, but because he's got a very high view of sex. And it matters to him how, how we respond to that. I've written something on my notes that I can't read, so there we go. So Jesus is, is challenging to all of us. Jesus is dignifying to all of us. I love this about Jesus. No one gives us a harder time than Jesus does. But no one most shows us how intrinsically we matter more than Jesus does. Well, the final thing is that, that Jesus is is satisfying. Um, there's a sense in which, in our kind of weird cultural moment, we have too low a view of sex. Again, we, we say things like, oh, I'm just, it's just physical, it doesn't mean anything. We don't mean that, but we say that. We think we mean that. It's also true that we have too high a view. Because we've, we've led ourselves to believe that this is going to be the thing that is going to most be key to my being fulfilled. This is the key to the rest of my life being, being good. Um, I flew over from, from the UK not long ago with a friend of mine and he, he watched three movies back to back on the flight. One was a superhero movie, one was a kind of a thriller, one was a comedy. He said the message of each of those movies was exactly the same. If you don't have a special someone in your life, then your life is is substandard you're not you're not leading a real full life and that's where we've got to we think yeah th th this sexual connection that is the key to me being complete and me being fulfilled and there's a reason for that there's a reason we look there for that sense of completion um, i'm told because i don't know these things that the, the the english word sex comes from a latin word sicari i don't know how to say that word but that's I'm running with Sakari for now. Um, and that Latin word means to cut off, to separate, to, to amputate. And so the idea is that our, our sexual awareness is, is one where we feel separate from something that we're meant to be part of. We feel cut off from something, incomplete, unwhole. And there's truth to that. But whereas some people will say, well, all your talk about God and trying to be religious and following God is really about sex, Jesus flips it and says, no, actually, all of your searching for sexual fulfilment is really about God because the thing we are most cut off from, the thing we are most separate from, 
the thing that most does make us feel alone in the universe isn't a lack of sexual partner, it's a lack of a relationship with our creator. And so one of the things you see going on in, in the teaching of Jesus is that he shows us that our, our longings for sexual kind of completion, those longings are a picture. They're a picture of a, of a more intense longing, of a, of a much deeper union that we've been made for. Which is why Jesus didn't just call himself the Son of God, he didn't just call himself the Christ or the Redeemer, he called himself the Bridegroom. Because Jesus is claiming to be a divine husband who's come to, to bring a people to himself to experience that ultimate relationship, the one that our deepest human relationships are, are but a pale imitation of. And Jesus has, has come to, to do that, to connect us with our, with our creator by himself. As he hung on a cross, he became Sakari. He became cut off. He did become separate. He did become unwhole and incomplete so that we could be filled up, so that we could be all that we're meant to be, so that our lives could be full, so that we could have the deepest connection in the universe. Far deeper than sexual intimacy is spiritual intimacy with the God who didn't just make you but thought you up in the first place. Came up with the idea of you. And any time we think we're going to find ultimate fulfilment in, in a sexual or romantic relationship, we're, we're mistaking the model for the reality. So let me finish with another really up-to-date movie, this one from 1999. Uh, Another discussion to have on another week is why the 90s was the best decade for movie making in the history of the world. Um, I will go to the stake for that claim. Zoolander. Yes. Yes. That significant cultural artefact for the ages. Premise of the movie, the more good looking you are, the more stupid you are. I, personally, I find that very offensive. You didn't have to laugh that much, okay? <laughs> but uh, there's a scene in the movie where they've, they've decided they're going to open a school for Zoolander, who's this male model and really stupid. They're going to open a school in his name for kids, and they have the architect's model all set up. They can't wait to show him what it's all going to look like. So they invite him into the room. He sees the model, and he's furious. And I can hear some of you doing the line in your head, because he says, is this a school for ants? It needs to be at least three times bigger than this. And the, the absurdity is he's mistaken the model for the real thing. And every time we think, oh, if I can just sort out my, my love life, that will make all of my life fit together. We mistake the model for the reality. And there's a man from 2,000 years ago waving at us going, I'm the bridegroom here. I'm the thing you actually most are looking for in your life. So I'm going to stop there. I'm going to quickly say a prayer and then we'll, we'll have a bit of, a bit of Q&A. Father, thank you for all the things that Jesus says to us, most of which we don't always want to hear but need to hear and which are good for us. Thank you, Lord, that he's willing to show us what our own hearts are like. We don't perceive that without his help. And thank you, Lord, that he didn't just come to do that, but he came not just to diagnose what our hearts are like but to 
to give us new hearts, to repair us, to make us new, to give us a new self, to help us, to help us be people again, to give us our humanity back. Father, thank you that when it comes to this whole issue of sexuality, Jesus is saying something freeing to us, that we don't have to have this part of life going well in order to live in a way that is full and complete, that we can find those things in him. So if this is new to some of us, Lord, help us to just think about it. Help us to keep coming back to what Jesus is saying. And even for those of us who, who maybe have been followers of him for many years, help us to receive afresh all that he says to us in this text. And we pray in his name. Amen. Oh gosh, that's a good question. Do I repeat the question yeah, for sure. the people yeah, in audio true. land? So that the question was, um, if, if sex is binding, what about when there wasn't consent and where something was taken rather than giving, is, is that also binding? Uh, not in the sense of, of requiring any obligation to that other person. But what, what it does reflect is why, is why that can be so profoundly painful. Um, one of the things that the Me Too movement has made so very apparent to all of us is that sex never was just about biology. Because the, the effects of sexual abuse go far, far, far beyond just physicality. Um, they're, they're profoundly psychological. The damage is, is far-reaching because in the right context, sex is about far more than just physicality. So when, when, when it is misused in that way, that is, a, that is a profound evil in the Bible. We see, we, see God, uh, we see God catching up with people who do that um, and championing those who are victims of that. And for, for those of us who, who've had, things, had experiences like that, um, we, we don't owe anything to the person who did that to us. We're not bound to them. Um, yes, and we're someone Jesus, I think, especially identifies with. Um, does that help answer the question? Thank you for raising that. That's so important. Anyone else? Yeah. yeah. Yep, so I'll try and capture that for people who should have been here but for some reason weren't. Um, <laughs> So the question is, you know, that, is there a difference between the kind of cultural view of marriage and what marriage really is? How do we know what marriage is and what we're waiting for if we're waiting for marriage? Is that a fair yeah. expression of it? Yeah, it's a good question because it, it, it recognises that the Bible gives us a kind of a, a definition of marriage that every culture had, does its own thing with, um, has its own version of. Sometimes in any given culture their, their version of marriage can can be fairly close to the Bibles, but in, in every case, cultures kind of don't entirely, you know, fit in with everything the Bible says about marriage. So we should never be surprised if we find ourselves in a culture that is at odds with aspects of what the Bible says about what marriage is. In the, in the Bible, and we see Jesus himself saying this in Matthew 19, marriage is between one man and one woman, and it's designed to be lifelong. And that, that rubs up against our culture in some very obvious ways. Uh, it rubs up against other cultures in, in equally problematic ways, but which are different to ours. So in some cultures, 
the fact that you're only, if you're a man, you're only supposed to have one wife and not several wives. That's offensive to some other cultures. The fact that in the Bible, a, a husband is to love his wife sacrificially and not to kind of domineer her or own her. There's a bunch of cultures today where that is massively countercultural. And for our time, it, it's the one man and one woman piece that feels really kind of unnecessary. Because in our cultural thinking about marriage, it, it's simply a romantic, an, a romantic arrangement between two persons. And even the number two now is, is up for grabs. It could be some other number of persons. But it's about kind of celebrating mutual romantic fulfillment. Whereas in the Bible, it's, it's about a promise and a covenant. Um, so it's, it's quite different. And the, the, biggest, the biggest redefinition of marriage wasn't when, you know, we legalized same-sex marriages. The, the biggest redefinition of marriage is when we turned it from being a covenant into a sort of arrangement of convenience. So for as long as we're both feeling good about this, we'll stick with it, but the moment one of us doesn't, we can step away from it, and it's no, lo no longer covenantal. Because one of the things, so I'm, not, I'm answering other questions now, uh, one of the things we see in the Bible is that, that marriage is meant to be a picture of the kind of promises God makes to us in Jesus. It's, it's promises to say, I'm going I'm to love you unconditionally. Whether you're being good to me or not, I'm going to love you, for better or for worse. So... God has given human marriage to, to, to be a signpost to that. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it, it does mean there, is, there are some distinctions between the kind of cultural definition of marriage around us right now and, and what the Bible says about marriage. In, if you want to look at this more, in, in Matthew 19, Jesus talks about marriage. When Jesus finishes talking about marriage, the first thing the disciples say is, it might be better not to marry. Okay, Jesus' view of marriage isn't easy. Uh, when Jesus preaches on marriage, people think, I might give that a miss, that sounds a bit serious. So again, it's because we, we've got a different set of, of cultural expectations of, of what this is meant to be about. Yeah, do I, do I choose not to follow my own sexuality? Um, yeah. Well, well, a better way of putting it is I choose to follow Jesus. And there are, there are, for anyone who follow Jesus, follows Jesus... He says we're going to have to say no to self. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. So here's, here's something <laughs> stark. Jesus doesn't put the word self in front of fulfillment or identity or actualization. He puts the word self in front of denial. Not because he, he doesn't want us to really live, but because he does. Jesus is saying we, we literally have to get past ourselves to really live. So for each one of us, each one of us, that's going to involve saying some very profound no's to, to deep desires and longings in our hearts. For some of us, that will be felt more in the area of sexuality. For others, it might be felt more in the area of ambition or something like that. But, but every one of us has to say no to something that's, that feels quite deep and innate. So for me, yeah, part of following Jesus is, is saying no to, to some particular sexual feelings. But when you realise the Jesus you are saying yes to, saying no to those things seems worth it. 
And if it doesn't feel like it could be, then you're not seeing the Jesus who is there. Because the Jesus who, who is there is one that you think, he's actually worth giving up my whole life for. And I was talking to someone recently who said, are you, are you telling me Jesus says I should give up my sexuality to him? I said, no, no, it's much worse than that. Jesus says you should give the entirety of your life to him because apparently he thinks he's worthy of that. And Jesus thinks no area of our life is going to be improved by keeping it back from him. So it's another way of saying, I trust Jesus more than I trust myself. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. How, what do we say when someone says, how can you believe in a God who's against love? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's something we, I think we often hear, but again, when you, when you look at the, the God of, the God that we see in Jesus, the God that Jesus is claiming to, claiming to perfectly reveal to us, you realise you are staring into the eyes of love itself. Um, the, the Bible says God is love. Not just that God does love and he's good at it, but he is love. This is his thing. And we, we know enough about love to know that it's, that it's, it's, the, point, it's the point of life. Um, people who kind of lose all human relationships just for the sake of advancing up the career ladder and they end up with no one, we know that's not worth it because a life without love isn't, isn't a proper life. But we're not very good at knowing exactly what love is and what it should look like in any given situation. And we, we need God to show us how to find and, and to demonstrate the right kind of love for each, each part of life. So there are different kinds of love. If, if I say to you, I love my mother, if I was married and said I love my wife, I love my pet dog, and I love bacon, you're instinctively taking the word love and, and putting it into slightly different categories. There are different kinds of love. And if we, we know that if we get those loves the wrong way around, if I start loving my mother the way I love bacon, I'm going to be in a Netflix documentary one day and it's not going to go well. <laughs> So we know that there are different kinds of love, love and we need to order those loves in the right kind of way. And we, we approximate doing that, but we need God to show us how to really do that because not everything, not everything we interpret as being love in our lives actually is love. Uh, we're, we're not proficient enough to, to be sure of that. I would also say, just, just a postscript on that, that the most painful thing in life is missing out on love and that the, the greater the love the greater the pain if we feel we're missing out on it if, if god is love the actually the deepest truest richest form of love is with him and there's, there's nothing more painful than missing out on the love of god